Indeed, we have a Savior. Take your Bibles, if you would, please. And I'm going to throw a little bit of a curve here. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy. We will get to Matthew chapter 1 later in our service today, but we're going to begin in 1 Timothy. What we're going to do is really focus on a passage of Scripture that we will talk about from now on through the Christmas season. And as we break that down and apply all of it, it is from an ancient hymn or perhaps a creed that Paul shares or reminds Timothy of as he writes to this young pastor to encourage him in the responsibility of the local church and to encourage him in the responsibilities of preaching the gospel to every creature. When we were last together, we looked at a passage of Scripture in Colossians, a very important text, a very important book in understanding the gospel and what our responsibility is. And some of the things that were happening in Colossae at the time is there was a misunderstanding of the deity of Christ, almost at times a denial of that, a misunderstanding of His humanity, at times a denial of the humanity of Christ, and a denial of His sufficiency and this this practice of depending and, and uh, resting in a lot of different things that really don't matter as opposed to the preeminence of Christ. I shared with you that that reflects much of what's happening in our world today, and it parallels much of the challenge of evangelicalism in the church and getting things right when it comes to the gospel, getting things right when it comes to the preeminence of Christ, and for our intents and purposes, getting things right when it comes to this Christmas celebration and the context of the local church. As we comment on that through the course of the month, we'll bring some clarity to the whole matter. But as you know, many churches celebrate Christmas and the Christmas season in many different ways. And I don't believe there's any one right way or wrong way to do that. And as we reflect upon some of the practices of Scripture, I'm not sure that there's any right way or wrong way to communicate that message, particularly at Christmas time. But there has been much written and some confusion around the Christmas season. If you're interested in kind of sorting out that confusion, join us in the chapel for the next couple of weeks. We're going to look at the practices of Christmas have they come from paganism? Is it something that we've tried to redeem? Why do we do the things that we do? But in the text this morning, we're going to tell you what the true meaning of the Christmas celebration is all about. And as Paul reminds this young pastor, Timothy, I will remind you that the Christmas season is all about the preeminence of Christ and all of His glory. If you recall in Matthew chapter 16, there were people in the district of Caesarea Philippi, and uh, they were speaking much, whispering about the person of Jesus. And Jesus turned to His disciples and said, who do people say that the Son of Man is? What are you hearing out there on the streets, if you would? The disciples answered, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then He looked to His disciples and He asked them, well, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't reason to this point, but my Father who is in heaven, I tell you, you are Peter, 
And upon this rock, upon Christ Himself, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is the purpose and the meaning and the work of Jesus Christ summed up in in Simon Peter's statement, although Simon Peter didn't understand all of the complexities of much of what he's saying. So I'll remind you of where we've been in the last couple of weeks and where we're going in this Christmas celebration. And by reminder, I will tell you that the local church, even at Christmas, does not exist to meet your needs. It is not your playground. This is not your living room. This is the house and the body of the living God through our Savior Jesus Christ. And this is serious business. I'll also remind you that the local church's job is to teach the Word, the very essence of where we find the meaning on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and part of that involves worship. We have a Savior. We have a Savior. Boy, does the world need that message today. We have a Savior, but it's our job to clear that up through the preaching of the Word and through the celebration of worship, through the remembrance of the Lord's Supper, through baptism next week, and all of this brings glory and honors and lifts up the Lord Jesus Christ. We are here this morning for one simple reason, for the glory of God because of the work of Christ and our lives. That's what Christmas time is all about. We'll turn in a minute to the text. It's one announcement as we move forward here, and that is at the end of the celebration offering, we announced the initial offering. So we kind of closed the books on that, and the celebration offering came in between sixty-six and $67,000. So your uh, generosity never ceases to amaze us, and that will be used for a number of different initiatives. Uh, thank you for your generosity. Pray with me, please. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that You might bless us as we, as we sing our praises to You and begin to remind ourselves about Christmas time and the real essence of the season. I pray that as we reflect upon the Scripture, it would become crystal clear to us what the message is we ought to be preaching to a lost and dying and increasingly dark world. I pray that you'd give us perspective to look beyond those trivial, meaningless things to that which matters most, and there is nothing that matters more than the preeminence of Christ when your people gather together to worship. We exist as a church and as a people because of the work of Jesus Christ in securing our salvation, and I pray that as we worship during this Christmas season, it will be a reflection upon all of the glory and the honor and the praise and the adoration that is due to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We also pray that you might teach us from this passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 3, as Paul encourages this young pastor, may we take it to heart, may it be the essence of our message, may it be the change that takes place in our life, and may you be pleased at Christmas time with our worship here at First Baptist. We ask all of these things and and praise and honor and glory to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, as we reflect on, on Paul's letters, very personal letters, pastoral letters, to this young man, Timothy, he is writing to encourage him. He is a, he's an individual who struggled with a little soul. He was rather timid. He was uh, given over or susceptible to 
to the comments and the stresses and the pressures of ministry. And, and Paul is writing to, to encourage him. He has visited, visited them uh, probably in the city of Ephesus. Now he is writing. He desires to go back and meet them, but his plans haven't come to fruition. So he's writing his first letter in case he doesn't get back there. And eventually, we don't know whether he ever gets back to Ephesus to visit Timothy and his duties and responsibilities. So it follows up with a second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy, which is the very final letter penned by the Apostle Paul that is included for us in the book of the New Testament, where he teaches and, and preaches and challenges Timothy to preach the Word of God no matter what else might happen. And in essence, that's really what he does in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. Timothy was a spiritual son to the Apostle Paul. He had led him and won him to Christ through the faithful preaching of the gospel. Timothy had been discipled and nurtured in the family. And it's interesting how that happened by his mother and his grandmother. And Paul is now speaking into this young man's life when it comes to his calling in Christ Jesus to preach the gospel and to assume a leadership position in the church. And again, he's spent some time with him. He is now away. His plans have been a little bit thwarted. He can't get back to see him. So instead, he writes this letter of instruction and encouragement to this young pastor. And we're going to pick it up in verse 14 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, and taken up into glory." As Paul writes to this young pastor, Timothy, to encourage him, he is writing to instruct him what it is, is his primary responsibility as he ministers in the city of Ephesus as, as a pastoral representative or authority, a representative of the great apostle Paul. And he's saying, I'd hoped to come to you, but I'm writing these things because my plans were thwarted. I still would like to get there, but if I can't, if I'm delayed… I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God. I ought to preach some messages on that. How should one behave in the household of God? I'll recall for you the passage of Scripture that we reflected on in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, where we're told, guard your steps when you come into the house of God. This is serious business this business of ministry and, and local church ministry. And Paul says, now listen, as a leader, I want to remind you how it ought to be done. I want you to remind you of what is true and right and in order. I want you to remind you of how you are to, to lead and, and give counsel and guidance to the church, the local church, the household of God. We'll get to that in a minute. And he spends both First and Second Timothy kind of explaining all of that, including leadership including what they do in worship, including a number of different things. But in particular, right now, he's talking about behavior as a pastor in the household of God. What does he mean by that household of God? He's talking about the church of the living God, 
grounded in the living Savior, Jesus Christ. He's talking about the church, not as a building. We place far too much emphasis in, in our culture and sometimes generationally on the building itself somehow being sacred or set apart. It is the people who are sacred and set apart. It doesn't mean you can run wild in the building either. He's saying, I'm writing to teach you how to behave when you're, when you're among all of those people. That includes the building. But he's not just talking about some edifice or some church or some building. He's talking about a body of believers gathered in a local place with the same belief, and the same practice, and the same habits, and the same form of worship. He's reminding them it's not their church. He's reminding them it's the church of the living God. He's reminding them that they can't do whatever they want to do. He's reminding them that they must do what they have been obliged or given over to do. He's reminding them that the local church is not a human institution pliable to any contemporary trends. He's saying, Timothy, this is what the church is, this whose, whose church it is, and this is your role in that church, so this is how you ought to behave. Reminds me of some of the words of, of Paul to the Ephesian elders as he says, says goodbye to them in the book of Acts, calling them to careful attention as overseers, leaders in the church, to care for the church of God, which is secured or obtained through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is serious to be a spiritual leader. It is serious to play the role of a pastor to serve in the capacity of these men who are sitting up front right now to take care of and look after the ministry and the work here at First Baptist Church in Johnson City. And to be reminded that's not our church. It's never been our church. And that's a glorious reminder because if it's our church, that church will stand and fall upon us, but it's not our church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of the living God. No matter how culture may change and the challenges that we face, the church will remain strong because of Jesus Christ. It will remain strong because it is the church of the living God. A church a local church, not a, not a corporate, all people of all ages, but a local church who has a divine ministry, a divine mission, and a divine message as a local church. You say, well, what is that? And he tells Timothy exactly what that is. The church, the local church of which Timothy is responsible, the local church which he must oversee according to the Scriptures, you know, we get so caught up and sometimes ministry, wrestling with peripheral things that really don't matter, getting caught up in this and whatever someone's idea might be, the church of the living God and the leadership of the church of the living God is, according to Paul, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church of the living God and its leadership primarily should be concerned about the message of the church and the mission of the church and what is it that God would have for the local church. The importance of the local church is seen in its context of his instructions to Timothy, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the church, a support or a foundation upon which everything else rests, a pillar holding up 
that honest and, and glorified truth of the Scripture and a very buttress or foundation of what God is doing through the church in the world in which we live. Now, this was particularly vivid language to Timothy as he hears Paul's instruction, because in the city of Ephesus was the temple of Diana or Artemis, which is dealt with in, in the book of Acts as they kind of revolt against those, those preachers of the truth who are undermining temple worship. This temple of Diana or Artemis was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. And in the context of that ancient world wonder, that temple of Diana, there were 127 pillars all through that pagan temple. And when Paul says, you are the pillar and foundation of truth, he is saying, no matter how many pillars they have over here, it is you that are the church of the living God. There is none other. Juxtaposing God's work through the church as opposed to these pagan temples. Interestingly, each of those pillars would represent a particular gift from one of the kings around the world. So it was lavish. It was glorious, this temple of Diana. But the local church was even more glorious in spite of this young, timid pastor, Timothy, because it was in the confines of that local church that they had been given the truth to preach to the rest of the world, and that truth is the pillar and buttress of everything God is doing in the world. Pillars meant something to these Ephesian believers. It gets lost sometimes when we don't understand the text. He is saying, don't worry about that seven wonders of the world. Timothy, you. Can you imagine the weight of responsibility Timothy must have felt? You, gathered in the city of Ephesus, worshiping the true and living God, composing His church. You are the pillar, foundation, the buttress, the fortress of the truth. The task of the church is lifting up truth and holding up truth and exalting truth and challenging the lack of truth in the pagan culture in which we live, the full content of the Christian faith. But it's not just Timothy. I will answer intimidating. I will answer to a, to a holy God someday for how I behave in the household of God. What I do, what I emphasize, what I focus on. That's why I start every worship service with take your Bibles and turn to, please. It's not because it's my style. Some people historically even now say, well, that's just Murphy's style. Not my style. It's my calling, that's my directive, that's my obligation, it's to be obedient to the truth for the church, it's, it's the pillar and the foundation of all things pertaining to truth. I am personally responsible for that, but I want you to know that collectively we're responsible for that. Collectively we are responsible for making the Word first and upholding the supremacy of Christ in all things. Sometimes, as the leader of the church, like this Tim Timothy, you have to speak to those gathered in this church saying, no, you have that wrong. This is what we ought to be doing. And people say, well, I 
See, he, he just wants to run everything and control everything. I'm doing what I'm called to do, just what Paul told Timothy. You make sure that this church represents the pillar and the buttress of truth. Make sure this church is known as the church that preaches the Word and holds up the supremacy of Christ. Together and collectively, we do that. But I want you to know that you have to do that as well. One of the things that Paul commends Timothy's mom and grandmother on is for the fact that they taught him, anyone know, in the truth, the Scriptures. Their discipleship of their son, their grandson, was simply teaching him the Bible. Nothing changes for the people of God. We are the pillar and the butlers of the truth in our homes as we gather together, as we open the book, as we corporately worship, it is our role and job to preach the Word in season and out of season. You cannot in any way study the Scripture, study spiritual leadership, or study local church ministry without coming to the conclusion that in the local church there must be a centrality of the Word of God. That must be the thing above all other things that we are known for. Charge was given to Timothy. It was given to the people that Timothy would read Paul's letter to. It is given to us as individuals, and it was upheld by Timothy's grandmother and mother as they discipled him in the faith, the Word of God. You know, there's a real danger sometimes in turning pastoral ministry and leadership into a chaplaincy, turning the church into a place where everybody comes to have their their needs met. No, we gather, and my role is to preach the Word. And again, he'll remind Timothy in these letters, whether whether you feel like it or not, whether it's timely or not, whether people hear it or not, you got to preach the Word, Timothy. That intimidates even the most strong-willed person. But Timothy, in his timidity, had to be told and encouraged to do that. So what is this Word that we're supposed to teach? What is it, this Word that, that is supposed to go out from this place? It is a Word, a truth, that is great Indeed, Paul writes, it is a true truth, as Francis Schaeffer would say in Ephesians or in, in, in the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, verses, verse 28, or within that context, as they rebel against these, these preachers of the gospel, the response is, great is Artemis of Ephesus. And what Paul is saying is, no. No, great is the truth that sets men free, and it's great indeed. You, know, well, you ought to read that historical text in Acts chapter 19. It gives some meaning to some of what these Ephesian believers were hearing as Paul writes to Timothy as he leads them in the truth. It is great indeed, we confess. Interesting word. That confess introduces the next portion and this confessional, this creed, more often, or more, more than likely, it's a hymn. They actually sang this hymn in the church to remind them that the church was the church of the living God through Jesus Christ, who was the pillar and buttress of the truth. 
And in the hymn, there were a number of different stanzas, and in this truth, it sums up the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It lifts up the supremacy of Christ. So, in many ways, it was a simple poem, a simple statement, maybe, maybe a song that would remind Timothy, this is your role. He's not teaching it to Timothy. He's quoting it and reminding Timothy of his responsibility, and here's how he says it. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. What is this message all about? Well, it doesn't doesn't take a genius. This message is all about Jesus Christ. It is all about the gospel. It is all about the Scripture from Genesis 1 to the end of the book of Revelation that encompasses God's story in the world that centers on the person and the work of Christ. He says, it is the mystery of godliness. When he talks about this mystery of godliness, he is talking about that which was once hidden the promise of a Savior now revealed the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Christ, the glory of Christ, and the gospel of Christ that is working itself out in the world and is working itself out in the world how? Through the local church, through the faithfulness of Timothy and the people gathered in these house churches in Ephesus and, and them sticking to the script, if you would. And the script or the hymn or the creed or the confession included in this text is all about Jesus Christ. Paul testifies throughout his public ministry that he decided to know nothing among you, writing to the church at Corinth, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He said, that's my challenge. That's my goal. This is what I do. I preach Christ crucified, full of glory. Philippians, he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ shall be proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul said, here's my message in a nutshell. It is all about Christ. It's all about the gospel. It's all about this truth that sets you free. And what is this gospel? Paul tells the church at Corinth what it is. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Any kind of discrepancy or turning away from, any kind of of, of cultural moldability to this truth, and it ceases to be the truth, hang on to it, here's the truth. I deliver to you as of first importance. The most important thing, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. He was buried, and He raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. I'm not a chaplain. I'm not a CEO. I'm a proclaimer of the truth, and the truth has got to be about Jesus Christ. That's why we exist in this glorious mystery of God. We confess that it is Christ alone. A confession is simply that we're all saying the same thing. That's a corporate responsibility. 
It's also an individual responsibility because if we believe it from the pulpit and we believe it as a body, it must be lived out and told to our children and our children's children and their children and until we have no breath left. We confess Christ crucified full of glory, the mystery of godliness. He spells it out in this way, and we'll spend some time over the next weeks talking about this. Number one, He was manifest in the flesh. He was made visible in the flesh. Really important words that Paul uses there. Jesus was not created, nor did He come into the world when He was born in that manger. He has always existed as the second person of the Godhead in all of His glory. But He was made visible in this mystery of godliness. He was made so that we might see Him in in, in all of that reality when He came as a child and fulfilled the calling of God in His life. He came to seek and to save those who were lost, and it was through the giving of His life as a ransom for the sins of many. He was manifest in the flesh. He's speaking of incarnation. And that incarnation is described by Paul in the church at at Philippi, that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Taking a form means that he took a different form, not that he gave up his deity. It implies that he took a form, although he eternally existed. That's critically important. There's this notion that, that, that Jesus somehow was created or begotten of the Father only on Christmas. He has always been the Son of the living God. He is now the Savior of the world and the mystery of godliness, and He took on a visible form to seek and to save those who are lost. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself, He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's a glorious message. God with us, Matthew says in chapter 1, verse 18. He was made visible and presented to us. He was vindicated by the Spirit. This vindication, He was uh, perhaps uh, confirmed in and through the Spirit vindicated by His sinless life, vindicated by His obedience to the Father, vindicated in all of His perfectness through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, vindicated by His teachings and vindicated by His miracles, and vindicated even in His death where the centurion cries out, truly, truly, this is the Son of God. Everything that He did validated the person and work that He came to achieve, sacrificial atonement for the sins of many, to the point of becoming sin who knew no sin, that we might be made in the righteousness of God. He was seen by angels, perhaps more literally attended to by angels. You read that all through the Scripture. Who announced the birth of this glorious Messiah? It's the angels to a bunch of shepherds on a hillside. All throughout Christ's earthly ministry, through His temptations and His miracles, and as He would go apart into a private place, He was ministered to and attended to by angels. Why? Because He is God, God in the flesh. 
going to say in a minute to the vindication of the resurrection that he was attended to by angels. The stone is rolled away and an angel sits on the stone and announces, he is not here for he has risen as he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. And eventually this creed and song will talk about the ascension. And Jesus ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father with the accompaniment of two beings, I believe them to be angels, who ushered him into the presence of God. You know what's happening today? John describes in the book of Revelation, and I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and forever. The angels are still ministering to our Savior Jesus Christ and we will join them in chorus someday. Isn't that glorious? (laughs) Glorious. That's the message of Christmas. That is the focus of the church. That is the preeminence, the supremacy of Christ, ministered to by angels, proclaimed among the nations. That's where we come in. By the way, even the rocks will cry out if our voices remain silent, but we are here to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We exist as a church and an entity to worship our Savior Jesus Christ, to conduct ourselves in the church in a way that is in keeping with a glorious mystery of godliness, and we were to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Until the end of the age, it will be His church, and we will be His mouthpiece, and we will proclaim among the nations the glory of our King. And to as many as believed on Him, to them He, became, he gave the power to become the children of God. We won't take the time this morning, but in a, in a later message from this text, to look at the people gathered around the throne of heaven, gathered from all four corners of the earth, from every tribe and kindred and nation and ethnicity and race, and it goes on and on and on, giving praise and honor and glory to their King, King Jesus. We get discouraged sometimes that our world is ever turning more and more pagan by the day, but make no mistake about it, Christ is still building His church to the preaching of the gospel, and people are being saved all around the world for His glory. And we'll all be there someday singing the praises of what He has done. He was manifest in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit and ministered to by angels, proclaimed among the nations, and believed on in the world. Are you thankful for that? That's why the gates of hell will never prevail against this church, because God will always be replacing us with people He brings to redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ, because it's His church. And it brings Him glory. And while we're here, We stay faithful to the truth and we pass it to the next generation and the next generation 
because we've deceived ourselves into thinking that we'll always be around, and that's just not true. What is true is the church will always be here because the church of the living God, through the blood of Jesus Christ, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And finally, he's taken up in glory. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for the saints. His rightful position of supremacy. Soon he will stand at the sound of a trumpet and the shout of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we which are alive shall be caught up together in the clouds, and so shall we ever meet the Lord in the air. Comfort one another with those words. There is no comfort outside of the gospel. There is no comfort outside of Christ. There is no comfort outside of God's message and megaphone to the world. There is no comfort outside of the mystery of godliness and the confessions of the church and the preaching of the gospel and the supremacy of our King. He's in all and through all. He's the beginning and end, the Alpha and the Omega. Behold, He is coming quickly, and God's people say, even so come, Lord Jesus. That's the end of the book. From beginning to end, it is all about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul, so succinctly and gloriously in Philippians chapter 2, writes, in being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed upon him a name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here's how Paul taught Timothy to keep that focus. So the confession and the song, he was manifest in the Spirit or in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, and taken up into glory. And as He's left us here to minister here at First Baptist Church in Johnson City, calling us to one truth and one faith and one Lord and one baptism, as we find ourselves here today celebrating the beginning or the initiation of what we might call the Christmas season, we will remind ourselves of the message of this truth, the most important message that the world has ever seen. And we're introduced to some of our own frailty, because in some of our own frailty, even in the local church, we can, we can lose our way. We can forget about what what's really most important. We can get caught up in the temporal things of the world. We can get involved in these squabbles of somehow trying to manifest or modify the church to be more palpable or relevant to a culture at large. There's nothing more relevant than the gospel of Jesus Christ and my Savior and your Lord. Nothing more relevant. And nothing more important, in my opinion, in this age than for you and I to be preaching the gospel to every creature and championing and celebrating this ancient creed or hymn that Paul reminded 
this young pastor, Timothy, of. You and I exist, created in the image of God for the glory of Christ through His church. May all of us know how to behave in the household of God. Unless you forget, I'll remind you every Sunday, take your Bibles and turn to, please. And we talk about the glory of our Savior and King, Jesus. We will do that today as we pause and come before this table of remembrance. Jody Larner, would you ask the blessing on the bread? Our Heavenly Father, you are an awesome God, worthy to be praised. And Lord, as we, we think of this time of thanksgiving, may we always remember the blessings that you give us every day. And Lord, as we come into the Christmas season to celebrate your incarnation, the greatest blessing of all, when you came to us to be part of this world. But Lord, today as we come to this table and as we take this bread, may we never forget that that beautiful baby born in the manger was broken for us so that we could be reconciled to you. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to his son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. 
but from you will come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them and it kept, till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. When Herod died, behold, an angel appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. When he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warmed in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in the city called Nazareth. That which was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called the Nazarene. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. of Isaiah, the prophecy of our Messiah, we read, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The same night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, broke it, and blessed it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this as often as you eat it 
in remembrance of me. Bill Cole, would you ask the blessing of the cup? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for our church. I thank you for being an awesome God worthy to be saved, and I thank you for our salvation. I thank you for the cross, the blood that you shed upon that cross, Lord, that allows us to be reconciled with you, that allows us to have peace with God and life everlasting. Lord, I don't know why you did all that for us. For you truly know our hearts and how evil we are. But I thank you for your steadfast love and your faithfulness and for your grace that allows our salvation. And I thank you, Lord, that you now sit at the right hand of the living God, interceding for us. You truly are an awesome God, worthy to be praised. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. As they were eating, Jesus took bread. After blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, said, Take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, you will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The account of the crucifixion includes a text right after the prayers in Gethsemane where Jesus says, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Jesus, or Judas, came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And then they seized him and laid hands on Jesus. Let him away. Now at the feast of the governor was accustomed to release 
for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And then they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. When they had gathered, Pilate said to him, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he's sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, which of you two do you want me to release? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who was called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. He said, why, what evil has he done? They shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, and delivered him to be crucified. And from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all of the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion... And those who were within, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, truly, this was the Son of God. Isaiah again writes, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, 
Yet he opened not his mouth, and like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But that wasn't the end of the story. For Matthew records, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, it was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay. Jesus, to the same manner, took the cup. Seeing this cup is the New Testament, the new covenant in my blood. This do you as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup till the Lord returns as we participate in the celebration of our Savior. I pray that God blesses you in this Christmas season with a glorious desire, even so come Lord Jesus. But until then, we celebrate. Father, if we thank you for such a simple reminder of such a glorious and profound truth, as much as we learn, study, and dig into this glorious truth, it's never exhausted never gets old. The story never changes. As Paul admonished this young pastor in that church in Ephesus, we too are admonished today through a simple creed and hymn and a reminder, it's all about Christ. As we enter into this season, may it be the whole Christ, not just a baby in a manger, the fulfillment of the mystery of godliness for all men. May it be upon this same Christ, this child in a manger, and our King who sits at the right hand of the Father. And may this Christmas season be about the gospel and the supremacy of Christ and the obedience of your people as we lift you up, as we herald and speak of your truth to the world as your Holy Spirit brings men and women and children to Him from the four corners of the earth. May you be praised, and in your church, you alone. I pray that as we take this benevolence offering, you would bless those who give. You bless the wisdom and the distribution of these funds. And may again be a part of the big picture of the mystery of godliness. May it be in worship to you and in ministry to those that have called apart to this place to proclaim the message of Christmas. May it be so we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.